when you know what real violence can do and when you know how much damage can be done by even a small thing, some of what you see on screen that passes for fight choreography almost looks obscene. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fandy Show. Coming to you live from Aristocracy Island. I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. And today we are joined by the phenomenal Karen Lord, author of The Best of All Possible Worlds, Unraveling, Redemption in Indigo, The Galaxy Game, and the brand new wonder, the book of today's focus, The Blue Beautiful World. Welcome to the show, Karen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I think it's been a while since you've been on our show, for the record. Oh, I... it's been a good while. I think the last time, did we talk about the best of all possible worlds last time? I, I think that was the one, yeah. So That was a good shot. I remember that one. I think we did all right. We <laughs> hit like three out of ten, you know, I don't know maybe better. <laughs> it's been a while, so it's very glad to ha- I'm glad to have you back. Uh, this is fantastic. And the second I said, and I'm going to embarrass Brandon and I don't care. The second I said, we were talking like, oh, what's coming out this year? And I went, Karen Lord has a book and Brandon squeed. No. <laughs> I yeah. did. I mean, Karen knows this, but uh, uh, when we met at the Boca Slit Fest, I voraciously consumed both of the Cygnus Beta books uh, as soon as uh, I bought those copies. And it is still by far... Uh, one of the only series that is strongly lodged in my brain and my heart. Um, and now I'm very that. excited to talk about the Blue Beautiful World. But thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, and Brandon, you want to let folks know about uh, where they can send questions if they want to offer any thoughts? Mm-hmm. A friendly reminder to everyone listening that uh, we still want to hear from you. So please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We have put together some listener mailbag episodes in the past and we found out that those are actually really fun. We like talking to you about things that you talk to us about. So please let us know what your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions and more are so we can reply to you. So we can feel like we are all one big family instead of us just rambling to you like gods from on high because we're not if you want me to do an episode where i make brandon read edgar middleholzer i will you know i'll do it i would i would i have yet to read uh my wounds and my flute despite years of recommendation from karen i should solve this problem just saying i've read some middleholzer middleholzer's good (laughs) Uh uh-huh i'm still like regularly embarrassed that you have read more caribbean sci-fi than i have to be fair a phd will do that for you Fair. Yeah, I mean, I took a few Caribbean lit courses in my <laughs> PhD, so I've read a lot. Okay, so first big question, which is the kind of obvious question. The Blue Beautiful World. What is this book? What's the deal? Okay, so the, the, the easy and specific answer is it's a first contact book. Um, aliens meet humans on Earth, um, and, you know, shenanigans ensue as it were. But the broader answer is it's a work of sociological fiction because whenever, I, um, <laughs> whenever I'm looking at what interests me as a writer, it's never just the journey of one person. It's always the journey of a collective. It's always a, a case of how do pieces fit together. So um, sociological fiction, I was talking to an academic who gave me this epiphany. I was so grateful to him. 
Um, and he basically described the work of um, C. Wright Mills, who wrote a book called The Sociological Imagination. And the idea there is you had these sort of nested circles where you have um, um, personal issues, public, uh, sorry, personal concerns, public issues, and the historical context. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's it, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and that, that may sound like a silly thing to say, but to be honest, we just write the books, okay? And somebody else has to help us market them because those are two different skill sets. <laughs> so it's been a while that I've been trying to, to, I mean, it's very easy to, for me to say my work is Caribbean SF because I can see the lineage. I can see the, um, there's, there's just something about the themes and the style and everything like that, where I know that, that that's in my DNA. But not everybody has read Caribbean um, literature and Caribbean SF. So that's not always an easy marketing tool to lead with. And this description where I'm like, you know, you're not getting a journey with like one hero, you're getting all this additional um, stuff that's happening in within the family, within the community, within the, the, the government, and then also the historical, like, where do we come from? Where are we going from this? That's all going to be embedded in there. And it does look like a lot. And sometimes what I do, so as not to like write door stoppers, because that's not my style, is I purposely just give you like a, a taste of things as opposed to making everything like abundantly clear, like no details. And the reality is that's how we live our lives. Um, we are none of us so completely in the know that we could say, ah, yes, I'm definitely the protagonist of this particular novel. We're always trying to find out what the truth is. We're always trying to find out what the answers are. We're always trying to figure out how to go forward. We never have a whole lot of power. And uh, my characters tend to be in the same boat. Even if you think they have particular skills, it's still a question of how those skills are applied. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> that raises more questions for me. Yes. So, <laughs> so I keep saying that this book threw me for a loop. And so the mm -hmm. big first question I wanted to talk about is, is kind of why it did. Because the very opening chapter, it's about Owen. And he's this mega pop star who does ethno-folk music, if I recall mm -hmm. correctly, the, the subgenre which I had to Google uh, because I didn't know what that was. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. But, but you know, the beginning of this, I was like, oh, so we're getting kind of like, maybe it's like uh, Catherine Valente's space opera. We get lots of music stuff. And then it go, it just like hit me in the face with this sort of geopolitical or almost galactic political thriller with lots of moving parts, lots of politics. And, and I don't mean like the big P annoying politics of like presidential <laughs> elections, but like the implications of things like aliens interacting with human culture and like how do we react and what do we do and all of these moving parts and so i'm i i think you've started to answer this question and i and i wanted to definitely explore it a bit more especially as the backdrop for much of your story is a world in a lot of disarray because a lot of the stuff we're dealing with now has sort of come to fruition um and i wanted you to kind of i wanted to kind of know what kind of drove you to explore these particular stories or in, in this particular book about you know alien contact but then also all of these political elements that are kind of woven through some of which i think we'll come back to you know you remember my background i can't remember if we ever discussed it but if we discussed it we discussed it a very long time ago but basically i, I come from a background of um sociology but also diplomacy and i was really having a bit of fun in that book sort of describing what it's like to be an earlier mid-career diplomat and the, the weirdness that is trying to do things on a global level when you also have sovereign states who kind of want to do their own thing and, and look out for their own benefits and their own interests. So um, so a lot of it was really just kind of um, 
me working out things that I've studied, working out things that I've looked at and been interested in. And it and it and it does sort of change focus in, in the sense that I mean, but you said that the beginning kind of, you know, it threw you for a loop how it kind of is bared off into this um, you know, kind of geopolitical thriller. I kind of understand that because um you start off with something that seems really I don't quite want to say silly, but in a way it's silly. You start off with music. Um, you start off with um, a bit of sports, you know. The sports is actually uh, a hangover from the Galaxy game. And um, some of the themes are actually also brought from the Galaxy game because when I was writing the Galaxy game, I realized it was a bit too ambitious in my draft. I had to cut some things out. So I've been holding those things, waiting to expand them in, in, in the next um, book. And that's what this opportunity was. The the thing is that the the music and sports are actually part of my PhD, my PhD was on um, religious behavior in non-religious settings. And I looked at um, music students and sports science students and how they see what they do, what they study as something transcendent. And um, there are lots of um, like questionnaires on religiosity that are taken in the religious setting that are you know, given to church members and you know, um, people of faith and what have you. So I, I, I kind of took the existing um, things and then massage them into this new question that would say, instead of how do you feel about your faith, let's say, how do you feel about your subject? How does this make you feel? And then you take the numbers and you crunch them with a lot of statistics that, you know, still make me shiver to remember how I have these statistics I have to deal with. But then you, you see if there are correlations with the actual religious material and there are strong and significant correlations. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, so, so that was something that came into the story as well, even though I wasn't consciously thinking of it. But how can we ever escape this? You know, it's like that's where all the fuel is. That's where all the material is. And I saw you absolutely dancing with excitement. So I'm going to stop talking because I want to know what's going through your head right now. I'm so glad you brought this up because uh, there's also this same conversation about uh, what we think of as the traditional like science fiction fandoms of the religiosity of fandom experience, which is exactly what you're talking about in terms of sports and music. In fact, arguably in music even more so because there's actual studies of boy bands currently Mm -hmm. of the euphoricness that it's mostly about young women feel Mm -hmm. when they go to these big groups and they actually are having almost um, like they're basically passing out because they're so overwhelmed with this experience they're having And there's a phenomenon that people are studying now that has a lot of connections to religious euphoria that people have. It's obviously in a different context. So when you brought that up, my brain was like just a light (laughs) with all of these things that I've been learning a little bit about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's super cool. And you're right that the beginning of this book, by making it about music and sports, it's like it seems like it would be silly. But we kind of forget just how serious those things are in our culture exactly. and how much impact they really do have. Mm-hmm. And they're massive. Yeah, because uh, the thing that like immediately drew me uh, to the story as well, when I in- read the blurb and I was really intrigued by Owen as a character, in part because of the Galaxy game... Um, and after reading it, I realized you are in fact right that it does share a lot of, um, energy from the Galaxy game. And in particular, I'm so intrigued by the fact that, uh, both, uh, Owen in this book and Rafi in the Galaxy game are, uh, people in entertainment, uh, fields who are wrestling with the fact that they have so much 
clout in their field that it becomes political and are wrestling with what their responsibilities are as a result, knowing also that this is also a lot of personal clout for them that they can also leverage and wrestling with that as well. And I definitely wanted to ask you why that was uh, in particular a narrative that you wanted to tell of the idea of the idea that um there is obvious political power that can be leveraged through uh performance and what it means to actually leverage that that kind of political power so yes let's 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 talk about Rafi. so one of the reasons why this third book gives me so much satisfaction is that um i think every book I write, ask a question, and sometimes I don't fully answer it by the end. I just sort of lay out a lot of the issues and the problems and the twists and the turns, and I don't necessarily fully answer it. Sometimes it's because I myself, as a writer, am trying to figure out what the answers are. So we have to go back to the best of all possible worlds. When Rafi is growing up in a family where his father is being a very typical patriarch, and he has the power to be a very typical patriarch, he has the power to to make his wife very docile, very obedient. Um, he has the power to make his, his children fall in line. Not so much Rafi, but that's another thing. Um, he even has the power to, you know, if he decides that he, he wants to have a, you know, a mistress on the side, he even has the power to try to make that happen. But of course, because it's, it's Grace Delarue, she can push back against that a bit as well. So you have a, a, a child, a young man, you know, who's come out of that kind of background environment and basically seen how the such a, a, a huge power can be used in such a very petty and very damaging way. Um, I mean, we have someone who basically was happy to just be on a, a remote homestead and just like, you know, play mind games with his family, um, but had a, such a huge power that it took somebody like Fanat to really like, you know, stop him from what he was doing. So Rafi has been struggling with this idea of power all the way through. By the time he gets to the Galaxy game and he's at school at the Lyceum, you know, it's very clear that he's probably even stronger than his father and that he's feared. He's feared because it's like we don't have the societal structure um, to to put controls on you. We don't even realize the extent to which um, a lot of the, you know, ordinary things that we do are kind of powers, but we're socialized into the acceptable um, use of those powers. So, you know, you you think of it as a... It's almost like if you have a boy that's raised by wolves <laughs> as opposed to socializing in the human setting, you know, there are certain things you're going to be more concerned about because the, the checks and balances haven't been instilled from a very early age. So that's what Rafi comes up with. And as you know, Rafi in the Galaxy game makes the decision that, you know, he's really not going to let the um, fisted attempts of Cygnus Beta government to kind of control him go on anymore. He's going to go into a society that does have the structure to teach him what he needs to do. And that's when he um, learns about the game some more, learns what his power means within the game, learns from a mentor who is a nexus because that's really what he is, that ability to like pull people together in a network. And then learns that it even has a very mundane practical application, which is getting um, human consciousness to transit safely through dimensions at faster than light speeds across the galaxy. And that looks like a leap, a leap, a leap, a leap, a leap. But it's it's literally from, you know, just controlling your own little family to spanning the galaxy, you know. You know, by the time you get to the blue, beautiful world, I mean, um, we've always made it clear that Sigma Beta feels uh, uh, such a strong kinship to Earth. Earth is basically, um, you know, sort of 
the motherland, as it were. So even though um, Rafi, who is now Owen, is technically an alien, he does think of himself as someone who very much wants um, Earth to be in a good position, who, who has Earth's best interests at heart. But there's still all this question of this use of power. You know, he's had a whole stint as um, patron um, um, in in the um, with the Haneki, Haneki family, and that hasn't really like got rid of the itch of of um, I don't want to quite say wielding power, but you know he's he's been working on it and it's, and it's still not quite enough. So then he allows himself to go into this really dangerous position where um, we're talking about people who don't have psionic abilities and he's being able to literally command their worship. And that kind of thing kind of warps you. It warps you regardless. He knows that he means it for good intentions, but it's something that's going to warp him. So what's the answer to that? So the answer that I tried to give in the Blue Beautiful World is, um, you got to have your friends, you got to have your family, you got to have the people who say to you, stop, <laughs> you're being an idiot, stop, you're doing too much, stop, this is not you, whatever the case may be. And you have to have more than one, you have to have a lot of them, and they have. you have to give them that power over you. I, I said in another interview somewhere, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, that so too many stories that I see when you have that main protagonist, the protagonist has friends, but the friends are more like like sidekicks or subordinates or somebody who's like, you know, almost like, peripheral to just support them on their art. The people I've tried to surround Rafi Owen with are people who have their own lives, who have their own goals, who have their own ambitions, who he has given the power to say to him, no, 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 I, I think you need to consider reconsider what you're doing here because this is not this is not right. This is not the best way to do it and so forth. So um, the people I love in that are people like Noriko, who is like hyper competent and who is never in awe of him and who he kind of protects that, you know, he kind of makes sure that she just never feels that charisma from him. And then you have people like Peter Hendricks, who's, who's like another father to him, but a, a completely different father mode um, where it's like, yes, this, this is the way you can use power. Even if it's not like a psionic power, you can still have the power of, you know, te technological genius and wealth and so on, and still use it in very important ways. So, you know, your power doesn't have to be a, almost a magical sort of thing that nobody has. There are all kinds of ways that we can accumulate power and it's still about the ethical use of that power and it's still about having people who are willing to, to call you, call you on your shit when, when you're getting out of hand. So yes, that all three books are dealing with this thing. How do you, what is the ethical use of power? How do you hold power? How do you accept that you have power that needs to be used um, and, and use it in a, in a way that's actually beneficial and doesn't harm people? And and also acknowledges that, you know, yes, we're going to steal from Marvel with great power comes great responsibility. We we don't have to like stay in our little homestead and, and just like, you know, kind of manipulate our friends and family and, and, and say, right, that's that's me done. You you really do have to think about if I do have this, if this is something that is useful, how do I use it? But how do I also use it in a way that it's not about um, enriching myself. It's not about getting myself all the attention and all the wealth and all and all the kickbacks. Yeah, as Sean said, this is a book that is very much doing things in a mode that other books of its type of its type would not. Um, and I'm gonna let Sean definitely take uh, some of the uh, other politics questions, obviously. But the thing that I adore about uh, this book and the entire um, Cygnus Beta trilogy is the fact that it's 
asking obviously political questions from the lenses that we would otherwise consider smaller than politics um, in ways that reveal that they are intrinsically part of politics and that uh, our engagement with the kinds of um, power and influence that we have may seem small but are acting on levels of our social space that is obviously attempting to actually progress the way that we uh, communicate with each other and get things done. And I think that that's really rad. And I think that the fact that using sports and music as one of those elements reminds us that especially young people have a lot of power that they typically do not know that they have until they start using it. And that's really cool. When you were talking, and I don't know if it was just like, you know, kind of flashing back to conversations you had before, we come from the region that understands everything that you're talking about. We come from the region of Calypso and cricket and how those things have been used. Yes, Brandon is, is moving with excitement now because he knows he knows what I'm talking about. There have been studies... Everyone listening to this podcast right now, if you haven't read The Mighty Slinger by Karen Lord and Tobias Fakel, <laughs> you should do that immediately. <laughs> That's a good point. That's another... that You know, music is protest, music protest songs and, and the political implications of that. My goodness, you see that? I need to talk to you more often because even even i in, when you're in the middle of writing a thing you almost need to like step out of it and have somebody tell you hey are you aware you're doing this 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 okay yeah i'm definitely on a particular um theme here <laughs> so so yes um calypso and cricket i mean there's too much history involved there we don't have time to go into all that um i think sean from just from your exposure and in, in caribbean literature you will already have a good inkling of what we're talking about but it's, it's especially the, the tools of those who have little power to gain power. And, and I think that's very important because, um, you know, half of what we, half of our so-called democracy really is about making sure that everyone does get a voice, everyone does get a say. But that's, that's the ideal. That's not always the reality. So apart from the whole, you know, every four or five years we get to, you know, exercise this one vote, yay, there really is a sense of what are the other ways in which we can influence our lives, our society, our governance, and so on. And yes, things like music, things like sports can be really incredibly influential for getting people to pull together, to feel connected, to feel a sense of identity, to go in the same direction. And there's a long history of trying to suppress both of those those expressions, yep. <laughs> uh, not just mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, lots of mm-hmm. places. Yeah. So like trying to stamp out Carnival would be an example. Get, you know, be, to be fair, Carnival also had like people with very explicitly anti-colonial messages. <laughs> so I imagine colonial officials did like that very much. That was supposed to be the point of Carnival, though, if they'd thought about it. Like the original, it's basically, um, oh goodness, the technical term for it, I've forgotten. But, you know, it's basically the time when the common people get to mock the people who are or over them. And, and, and the people who are the rulers understand that you stand back and you let people mock you for a day and then they won't, like, bring up the guillotines later on. <laughs> Give them that outlet. You know, it's not going to hurt you. For one day, they get to, you know, just sort of talk about how silly you are and, and make you look really, really, um, you know, absolutely stupid. But then the next day, you're still ruling over them. So if you don't understand, that's kind of like, um, you know, part and parcel about what some aspects of Carnival are about. I mean, there are other aspects, of course, too, you know, sort of like Harvest Festival and the religious aspects of, you know, you know, Farewell of the Flesh. We don't understand all that. But but the the actual allowing for the mockery, allowing for that outlet, 
yeah, that's that's not something you should be suppressing. Is uh, you suppress it at your peril, and and they did <laughs> <laughs> to the literal physical peril of many, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But it, it it gets to a lot of I think what what you're getting at, which is you know these small acts as Brandon was was raising these seemingly small acts actually have very wide political implications mm-hmm. in a culture uh, because they can be places where people who may not have a lot of power can exercise that power very strongly. Yep. Yep. Which is also, I suppose, why I shouldn't have been thrown for a loop when we got music at the beginning. I should have just expected what I was getting. <laughs> but I don't know why I went in just like my brain didn't make the connection. Mm. So that was pretty yeah. cool. Really, the reason why you should have been surprised is it wasn't Calypso from the start. <laughs> That's a fair point. It, yeah. it was global, so it couldn't be Calypso. It was it was global, so it had to be ethnofolk. Because the point is, he's connecting yeah. with everyone on their home ground with their home in each country. I thought that was really interesting that Owen's thing that he does at the very beginning, and mm-hmm. it's described explicitly, that he he goes to a place and he hires a local musicians and he learns some song that's by some local and he learns, you know, a folk song that is unique to that region, and that's part of the concert he gives. And he does that for every single place. He's he's actually kind of a genius and scarily talented if he can do this effectively yet people are still surprised why is he so popular because there's all these questions like how is he having so much so why are his concerts so popular why does everybody love him so much uh and i think part of the reason and maybe you can talk about this is because he's making those very personalized connections in all of these different spaces he goes to he's not just doing owen music Mm -hmm. He's doing whatever he has, and then he's doing the things that are very deeply connected to wherever he happens to be playing at. And I don't know if that's what you kind of th- saw his his musical role as, but that seemed to be the message I was getting. I think I think you put your finger on it. The music, sad sad to say, is in fact secondary. the The in person connection is what he does. That's his thing. That that's his huge talent. Because you will see from the beginning, from the first two books, that there's, there's nothing that says that Rafi is at all musical, right? <laughs> I, I wanted to make that quite clear. And I also wanted to make clear, even by the time you get to him as Owen, it's, it's not that he's super talented either. But he's found a mode. He's found another. But again, he wasn't super talented um, at wall running either. He wasn't. He was actually, you know, kind of, you know, people would have had to help him a bit and so forth. And, and he was just like, Almost, like amateur level but but he had that buzz he had a lecture something so that that kind of of um that kind of level is what you see in his music again where the music in a way is secondary the thing is the in person and this is this is actually from real life because there are in fact people who there are in fact musicians who people say of them if you buy their records you're like eh. but if you go to their concerts you're a fan for life you're a fan for life. You're like, no, no, no. This, this is somebody who I will, you know, I will, I will fly to this other country and buy a ticket and see this concert again because, and I think that is something that is extremely special. I think it's incredibly brilliant. We have become almost desensitized because the concept of recording audio has been with us for so many decades now that, um, that it's, it's just, we're, we're, we're almost like, you know, that, that's just par for the course. But, you know, let's think back a bit before the, um, before um, the phonograph, sorry, <laughs> what's it? I can't remember. Yeah, before, before whatever it was, um, you know, the, the big horn shaped thing, before all of that, 
you know, let's go back into the the 19th century, the 18th century, and so on. People being on stage, people being in the theater, you know, um, sort of like within sweating distance of the people who are singing or acting and so forth. And, you know, there's there's that buzz. I mean, I'll never forget. I always say that the worst things they do to us in school is they make us learn Shakespeare on the page. Um, <laughs> Sorry, the, the reaction I got just now was extremely gratifying, you know. Um, you can't you can't learn Shakespeare on the page. You have to well the first the first time I saw Shakespeare um as a play, it was actually a televised um stage production, which is still a, a little bit removed, but you can you can see the audience reacting and that actually helps. But then when I actually was in an audience, um, you know, we, we actually went to Stratford on Avon. And I um, and had a um, front seat for Othello. Um, one of my colleagues got some stage blood <laughs> splattered on him when um, uh, Iago and Othello like cut their hands to make an oath or whatever. I, I, and um, I probably said that wrong, but Othello was one of the people cutting his hand. And, um, and, and honestly, there is just this way of being in the presence of their sweat and their spit and and their and the whole like the tension of the people watching as well. It's really just unmistakable. And that is what some people bring to their concerts, even if they're massive concerts. And, and it's the same thing you're talking about, the studies where, you know, the, the girls who faint in the presence of boy bands and whatever, what they're really experiencing is not even so much just coming from the boy band, it's, it's everyone around them, like just like making this thing more and more heightened. So, um, so, so yes, he... When Rafi comes into this as Owen, he knows he has more of an understanding of how to work this thing even than anybody else on earth. He understands how this kind of charisma works. He understands the modes by which it is applied. And he knows what he can do to, to get it to work for him. So that by the time you um, kind of leap from his concerts to him in with this bizarre almost like UN type setting where he's like walking through portals, connecting um, diplomats in different countries. I've, I hope I've given you enough by then that that moment no longer seems silly, that you're actually like, no, wait, he can actually do this. This, act this actually is, is not just, it's not something that, you know, my suspension of disbelief can't handle. We've seen him do this and we understand the concept. And now the idea that he can just be like, as again, you know, be in the presence of someone where their your breath is mingling and your hands are clasped and whatever, and then move on to the next person and, and make those connections and people like walk through the portals and embrace each other and talk to each other. Suddenly it's like, no, I see it. I get it. It's about not what he brings so much, but what he does in terms of connecting them with each other. And then they heighten it. They're the ones who become the powerful ones in the end. I'm so glad you brought up the Shakespeare thing because I feel like sometimes... We, we, we've like lost the, the idea that so much of our literary arts are actually performed. Yeah. You know, maybe not as like full stage plays per se, but even like literature was, would be read out loud to people mm -hmm. or, you know, you, you would, you would at least have more interaction with either the creator or, a, you know, a reading culture. And I, I really hope that if anyone teaches Shakespeare, I hope they're listening to what <laughs> Karen's saying because when I when I first I hated Shakespeare in school, but I had to teach it once for an intro to lit class because that was basically your options were like Shakespeare or people 
that nobody had ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to go with the one I can actually talk about. <laughs> so, uh, and so I did Hamlet mm-hmm. and the big thing for me was like, I don't, I can't just like have them read it. Uh, so I basically gave them a massive amount of extra credit. If a bunch of them put on a scene, they went and learned the lines mm-hmm. and came in quote unquote costumes mm-hmm. that they made themselves. Mm-hmm. I didn't think anyone was going to take me up on it, but they did. And they learned like, a full 10 minute scene nice. and put on a production nice. where they got like Burger King hats for the King <laughs> and the queen and like capes. And one guy was like in Ren Faire, So he was in full Ooh. regalia, like everything. <laughs> he was like, this he is my Hamlet, moment. Of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and I think they got something more out of it by like, they weren't great performers, mm-hmm. but they really just tried. And I think they got a greater sense of that scene than if they had just like read it and been like, let me tell you about why this is about suicide or something. Like, <laughs> no, this is you're acting out his emotions and trying to interpret mm-hmm. like what would this look like if he's performing this soliloquy. It was it was really great, and I think everybody should do it. Yes, absolutely. So, but stop te- teaching Romeo and Juliet because everybody teaches that one. Stop it. Oh, there are other reasons why they need to to not teach that. But anyway, um, I wanted to say <laughs> yeah, um, that's fair. I did. My school did make the effort to show us the films of the plays like Marlon Brando for Julius Caesar and, you know, to, to Kill a Mockingbird and so on. But that's still not quite the same thing as seeing a theater production. It's, it's helpful, it's useful, it's almost like the Cliff Notes version, but it, it, there is still something about the actual theater production that is very important. I do have to also admit that one of the reasons I became such a fan of Kenneth Branagh was um, when, I was, when I first saw Henry V um, on screen, film, um, and I saw it in the cinema, big screen, you know, like in the old days, as it were. <laughs> and, um, and the thing about it that impressed me, and this is where you kind of got to like, you know, pick your material, is that in terms of the material of Henry V, you're not going to be able to get the same mud and blood and guts and glory on a stage as you are on a screen, right? And there was just this bit near the end where, you know, he's he's got, it's actually, I think, Christian Bale. He's carrying, because Christian Bale was still like the wee kid then. And he's carrying his body because he's one of, the, one of the boys that got killed through, through the battlefield. And, and then, you know, they, they kind of do this whole like zoom out thing. And I'm just like, you know, and it's, you're getting chills. You're getting chills. You're like, okay, you can, you can put Shakespeare on screen if you know how to make the right choices. So much of knowing what to screen and what to put in the theater and what's really good in text. It's all about making the right choices. Um, text is really excellent for getting in the head of someone, for example. There are ways in which you can really get into a person's philosophy and thoughts and whatever in a book that is never going to work on stage and it's never going to work on the screen. Monologuing can go only so far. <laughs> um, True. So, well, I'm so sorry. You had questions, and we're talking about like the whole sweep of literature here. So, I am going to rain back a bit, and so we don't run out of time. But I think we're so much on the same page here in terms of you know how we see this, um, the the impersonness of it, the presence of it, um, being in theater, being remembering our performance roots at all time. I do think it's really important. So, I want to take a slightly different direction then to bring us back to the book. Uh, because I had this really interesting question in the back of my mind as I was reading, because there were these sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle jabs at alien conspiracy theories <laughs> uh, littered throughout the book. And oh. obviously they're intentional. Oh. Like, because some of them, like there was one at, at one point where you just said like, oh, it's that racist theory about the pyramids could be made by 
by any non-Euro people, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, yeah. But there were other ones, like, there was a moment where I was like, is Karen Lord referencing the reptilian theory here? Is is that what's going on? What's the reptilian theory? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's the oh, one where, God. like, reptilian aliens are on Earth and they wear human skin in order to manipulate the oh, governments of the right, world. right, right, right. Okay, hang on, hang on. Uh, I did not know it as the reptilian theory. Um, so, sorry, conspiracy. But I did, in fact, think to myself, there's something amazingly creepy because I, I really did feel, okay, I've put this far enough in the future that there's there's got to be a way for people to be anonymous than just going on the street. You know, there's got to be a sort of a combined VR physical thing that allows you to have a different face. And even if there's not, you know, we could just go with it because this is sci-fi. And then you get into the idea of um, we don't even want, this is the thing, we don't even want reptiles, reptiles, we don't want lizards, we don't want that level of complete alienness. We want the horrible, uncanny valley of someone who looks almost human. That's what these masks are really meant to hide. That's why they work so well, because you're really looking at... Um, I mean, a lot. We know that a lot of how aliens are portrayed in television is more about what can we put on a human actor that's not going to cost us a lot of money. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a real kind of, um, you know, like the first time you begin to see a face that you're looking at and you're like, I have never seen that particular genetic variation before in my life. Whether it's a case of, um, you know, something a little different in the spacing of the eyes, something a little different about the angle of the jaw. It's going to be something subtle, but it's going to be something where you just look at the person, you're like, I'm getting a weird feeling. I'm, I'm getting a really weird feeling. And the masks are almost like a part of that where, you know, you don't even get to see it. You just know, what are they hiding? They have to hide. They have to hide because there's something I'm going to see that I'm going to know they're not from this planet. And the fact that they're hiding it is actually like amping up the tension. So, um, so it wasn't so much a reference to a particular conspiracy theory as it was a, a kind of a let's see if we can, especially because Noriko, that's 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 the bit where Noriko is really like, okay, I I'm really grasping just how huge this is, and I'm really coming to terms with it because wow, and and that because she is such a of a down-to-earth and pragmatic person who does not scare easily. It kind of had to be something of that level, and it had to be something almost that psychological to be able to get her to be just like, all right, all right, I, I am actually going to face this head on. I'm going back to when I'm going to deal with this because I can't close my eyes to what's happening. And just briefly to that, one of the interesting things that I like about... Um, that and some of the other like narrative setups in this book is that uh at a point very early in the book this the it just kind of very strongly generates this kind of spy thriller kind of energy but one of the thing that one of the things that i think i appreciate about this book is it does that so well without being uh, a level of intense that another book would necessarily be. Uh, like, for instance, uh, at the concert, um, uh, when, uh, the attack happens, the scene is not dedicated to, okay, there are threats in the area, we must take them out before more damage occurs. It's what's happening to Owen. And how do we diplomatically resolve this situation after we've checked on Owen and made sure that Owen is okay? Um, that I actually really liked, that it was about 
um, the personal and the, like, kind of narrative political stakes of that scene, rather than how do we get rid of enemies in, in that kind of sense that I actually really, uh, dug the approach of and wanted to hear more about why you, not necessarily why you eschewed violence, but why you prioritized this kind of narrative lens. Wow. Wow. You got me thinking now. I mean, now that you explain it, I see it. But, you know, you're just doing stuff. You're doing stuff that feels natural. Now, you know, you got me thinking. Okay, I'll, I'll be honest with you, deeply honest with you. Don't even know if I should be saying this. But violence bores me. Violence bores me. I, I know that there are people who, when they're, they're reading it and when they're watching it on screen or whatever, they feel a level of excitement. I, um, I am deeply uninterested in violence. I train in martial arts. I train as a soldier and whatever. And when you know what real violence can do and when you know how much damage can be done by even a small thing, some of what you see on screen passes for fight choreography almost looks obscene. It's it's deeply indulgent and it's 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 fake on a level that's almost harmfully incorrect. Harmfully incorrect is the word I would use. So I I don't think it was like a conscious choice, but when you see me in a book like not glorifying violence, it's not like a moral stance. It's genuinely a I'm I'm deeply bored by this and um, if I'm going to give you a fight scene, it's going to be a very realistic one. It's going to be a very brutal one. <laughs> it will get the job done very fast. And we're not going to dwell on it. And, and you know, you just, you just sort of have to recognize things like how even uh, a small blow can have long-term effects on someone's body, for example. So there's none of this, the hero getting punched up, you know, 10,000 times and shot several times and skewered a bit more and keeps running. None of that's going to happen in any of my books, okay? It's, it's, just, it's just totally ridiculous. So, you know, if somebody needs to die, if somebody needs to, you know, um, be completely impaired, I will give a, a short, sharp. I mean, you've, you've read Unraveling, right? Unraveling is the closest I've come to making violence look poetically beautiful. But I literally do that in the concept, in the, in the context of a diseased mind, okay? Where it is shown that it's, there's almost a ritualistic aspect to it. I think that's why you, you get that particular approach for that scene where the, the violence is what kicked off things happening. But the stakes, as you say, were with Owen, were with how they could, could get it resolved quickly and, and without causing, like, you know, a huge blow up that was going to have serious. Um, you know, um, problems later on in terms of media and politics or what have you. Um, the the stakes were uh, identifying who was responsible because that's what all that was leading up to as well. Yes, and and I don't have a lot of time and pages to spend just unreeling a large and, and bloody violent scene when I know where my stakes are and they're not with that. It's almost you could say that that. I'm thinking back to the work that I have read by you that and and when violence occurs, it seems like you're mostly interested in not so much the actual act of violence, but like, what is the result? Like, how does that really affect people, even the yep. threat of yep. violence and how that yep. affects people? Mm-hmm. Because I think you're right to some degree that like a lot of our media sort of, I don't want to use the word glorify because that doesn't feel, it feels wrong. It feels moralizing, but... But it's almost violence for the sake of violence. And, yeah. and there's no actual reason or connection or whatever to 
it's sort of like the motivations for why someone would commit violence get sort of lost, and then the results of that violence, the very serious results, sort of also get lost. And yeah. so it's sort of like, we're going to have the big fight scene, and then the result is he's just tired and he bleeds a little bit, and that's kind of the end. It's like, <laughs> but he just got hit by a truck. I, I feel like there's more there. Like, maybe there's some PTSD at the very least. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but if I get hit by a truck <laughs> and I survived that, I'm going to have mm-hmm. problems. <laughs> so. Now, I do, have, I do have to admit that I'm specifically speaking about a story that's in a more or less of a realist setting. I do have an appreciation for um, the stories and the screen treatments that are like, here is violence and we're going to treat it like a ballet. We're going to treat it like choreography. You know, there's there's a particular kind of, especially when, when you're working with swords and whatever, where it is more like a dance, where you where if you know anything about swords and fighting with real swords, you're kind of like, this is really just for you to enjoy visually and it's not about anybody trying to kill each other. And that's fine. I like that. And, um, you know, there, there are ways you can do that. But then you've got to lean into it. You've got to make it very clear where it's like, this isn't violence as much as it is a kind of a, a choreography, a kind of a stylized something that we can appreciate because we know that we're putting this enough in the fantasy realm that this is where we are. We're not treating this with realism. We're treating this with a, a certain detachment or we're looking at it in a more of a mythological or ritualistic kind of way. Yeah, like uh, if I got that pronunciation right, wuxia, which a, mm-hmm. a type yes. of yeah, mm-hmm. which would be exactly that, right? In Crouching Tiger, mm-hmm. Hidden Dragon, where they do fight, but they're fighting in a tree, and it sort of tells us a lot about the characters, actually, the way that yeah. they fight. Yeah, it becomes a conversation of excellent. Listen, listen. I'm sorry. Why did you start me on this? The Princess <laughs> Bride. Yes, the Princess yes! Bride. <laughs> You literally like a, a conversation I hate to die. <laughs> yes but I, I, no the reason remember what i said before about the choices you make in terms of the media that you have to hand you gotta give gotta give that um author and screenwriter which is the same person props for knowing because in the book which i read first the book it is inigo's internal monologue while fighting they're not chatting you know they're just fighting, but he's like, oh, you know, this this man in black is doing X, Y, Z. But of course, that doesn't translate to screen, at least not in any way that we would find extremely boring. So they've been into a conversation, but it was still with the same effect, you know. So, so yeah, that's 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 me on violence. Sorry, Brandon. <laughs> no, that's oh, great. That's in, great. Its, <laughs> in its right place, in its right context, this was not the place for violence to be saying anything. It was the place for understanding the stakes around the results of the violence. So another question that I definitely wanted to ask, and I'm sure Sean actually has a lot of this, a lot of feelings about this as well. Back to the vein of uh, the small kind of lower level political engagements uh, that have uh, large stakes in the world. Um, diplomacy plays a large part uh, in this uh, book, and in particular, uh, the collective work of a lot of people who are not incredibly powerful but are now suddenly given a lot of very significant a very significant role in attempting to accomplish a, a task in this space mm-hmm. um Tiago Kanoa and I can't remember the other character's name now all of a sudden Bay Bay is one of them Right Bay <laughs> um put in this like theoretical uh, productive space where they're at, they're attempting to uh, reason a lot of solutions to problems on the fly 
while not knowing a great deal about each other or the things that they're trying to do in this way that I thought was really engaging. Um, I think Sean, in our notes, uh, likens it to uh, the Model UN, which I thought is a very apt comparison. (laughs) Um, Uh And in particular, I kind of wanted to ask... um, I'm sure you have a lot of things to say about this because you've mentioned it already, uh, why it was important to pick people who do have political understanding, but don't have like the clout of a prime minister or a president in this space being put (laughs) in a position where they now have to resolve these issues. So um, first of all, that whole setup that you saw, this mini UN setup, is basically me enjoying myself from the previous training that I have done, I did the Arts for Foreign Service program. Before that, um, I did a, a kind of a IT and diplomacy course, um, which was really an online course in Malta, where um, they had us for about 10 days in a sort of an intense seminar, getting to know you, whatever. And then we went back to our various countries and continued online. We had ICQ in those days. Can you imagine ICQ? This was like, this was like 1998. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> Goodness, I'm old. But anyway, um, so so that what you see in the book is a very scaled down version of that. And I really do have to say that in a lot of situations, when you do get a course like that, they do you do tend to realize that um, every country sends one person, right? So even if you're in a course, I mean, not all courses will necessarily have a U.S. representative or or a British representative, whatever, because they are focusing on um, countries that they feel they want to support in terms of, of um, diplomatic training. So you will see like a lot of Eastern Europeans and a lot of um, Commonwealth, a lot of developing nations and so on and so forth. So that's more the spread you're going to get. But at the same time, every country is only going to send one person. So you're not going to have a class that's dominated by American viewpoints. You're not going to have a class that's dominated with British history you're literally going to have a mix. And the mix can be, I mean, Kanoa is is partly inspired by um, a Micronesian classmate of mine in the Oxford Foreign Service Program. And one day we sat down and had a long chat and he, talk, he talked to me about how you sail, the, the triangular sails, because he was very much into the whole um, canoe sailing or whatever. And his grandfather did this amazing trip to Japan, just using the stars and so forth. And I remember, I, I wish I remember where I put the papers, but he even like sketched out to me, you know, what, what various settings of the sale were and so forth. And I was just like, and, and I, I kind of scared water, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm not listening to this because I think I'll actually use it, but just the fascination of hearing him talk about it. So even when Kanoa, like, you know, looks at the board and he's thinking about the design and so on and so forth, that's like a little, little nod to, to, to Larry. And um, so all of, all of that, to me, is that's the flavor of what the world really is. That's the flavor of what the globe really is. Now, I understand the reality is that if you are representing, um, you know, um, the U.S., you're representing a lot of people. So even just sending one person for so many people just seems horribly unbalanced when it's like, you know, one person coming from <laughs> Barbados, there's like small town in the U.S. type population. So I don't, I don't want to make it like glossed over too much, but, but there is a leveling, isn't there? There is a leveling. And that same leveling kind of happens when, just as you said, you're choosing 
a young person instead of like someone with the clout right the prime minister because that person who's at that level of either diplomacy or politics or governance has been through the system and been molded by the system okay <laughs> they're not going to have the flexibility of mind to to look at a completely fresh set of problems and say whoa whoa let me let me think about they're going to be very much in modes that they've been trained and and have experience in from before and there's i'm not saying it can't be done because already i have peter hendricks who in his 80s is clearly as flexible as any m- mentally as any young person you can hope to to run into you know he encountered aliens he was like yeah i'm going to beat them with their own game you know so you know that that definitely is is not me saying anything about age but there are people who do get established within their systems learn how that system works down to a t and don't want anything to change so you're not going to be able to do a lot with those people but if you have the younger people and they still have their connections i think there's a there's a line which i was sort of proud of where i um said you know they were basically working off of nepotism because all of these young people still had connections in various places to people who did have that level of clout and power and um you know you were saying you know one day we'll have a meritocracy but today's not that day <laughs> you know today is about getting the job done and yes we also chose you in addition to all your other special qualities we also chose you because you had connections to people in power people who you could speak to on a personal level and say hey can you take this seriously because i've been part of this and i can tell you and you know me and you know how serious i am and i'm telling you it's just something we got to pay attention to so last question that is related to this because there is this brilliant little moment when Kanoa is talking. I, I think the line he says is like, we need to be an us instead of a bunch of different individuals, essentially uh, this idea of like a united earth or united human culture or whatever we want to kind of call it. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if you were ref- going back and sort of referencing that kind of age old, idea that you see in science fiction of like some external impetus has convinced us we must unite together uh which even going back to something like the day the earth stood still when we're definitely not united and the aliens tell us yeah figure your stuff out or we'll take care of it for you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and i don't know if you were thinking about that idea of like how do we actually do this and Mm -hmm. and get to a point where we can have some sort of like the UN theoretically is supposed to start to get us there, but it, mm-hmm. I don't, I think it'd be fair to say it's not there at this moment. But is that kind of part of the thinking process for this book that you're sort of weaving the, the, the first contact and the alien narrative along with this idea of how do we begin that process of creating unity between human cultures? So I like that you mentioned the UN because when you look at the origins of the UN and prior to that, the League of Nations, the whole concept was. Can we please find a way to talk about our problems instead of killing each other? Because we are now at the point where our level of weaponry is such that it's definitely not fun for anyone anymore. Um, one of the things that um, still like kind of gives me the chills is whenever I read the Guardian online, uh, whenever not the TT Guardian branded, and I'm talking about the UK Guardian. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> although I read that one too. Um, but every so often there will be an article about. Um, some unexplodable war two mine, you know, found at the bottom of a river somewhere in, in the UK or dug up in a field or somewhere in France or what have you. And then I don't know if it was the Guardian, but somewhere I was reading about the whole the area, the no man's land area where the fronts used to be and where the trenches were and so forth. And 
basically that there are just entire regions that are still no-go areas because the amount of chemical warfare that happened there, the amount of mines that were laid down, um, it, they're still incredibly dangerous to be in that actual location. And when I read that, it just kind of blew my mind because we've all got the, the, the image of the, the nuclear wasteland sort of firmly embedded in our heads, especially at a global level. But even just to think that stuff that happened before you were born and, you know, this is going to go on at least for another hundred years or more, it's, it's still having an effect. This is us already at the point where we're seeing we have to find other ways to deal with this because it's not a case of, you know, somebody, you know, sacks and burns a city and it's in ruins and, you know, people just hop up somewhere else. And it's not it's not really a lasting problem, if you see what I'm saying. Um, not in not in the way that permanently con- you know semi permanently contaminated land is not in the way that unexploded mines are. So um, we're getting ourselves to that point already. And the whole concept of if we had an outside enemy we could pull together is a sad but true concept which has had lots of historical precedent, where we're always willing to compromise and join hands with people who we consider enemies if there's a bigger enemy out to get us. Um, there are already people writing some cool stuff that I have seen where it's never a case of, um, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of Kate Elliott's um, Unconquerable Sun, I'm in, I'm in the middle of, of Furious Heaven, and that whole idea of why are you looking for this sort of binary, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, nah, you know, real, real history doesn't operate like that. They're going to be shifting allegiances. They're going to be people who were very much like trying to kill you initially. Who are going to be like, oh, no, no, we've got to join together now because look at that. That's a danger to both of us. All that stuff is happening. Um, so, you know, theoretically it could happen. But what I want people to realize, and this, this was probably a bit of the conspiracy theory thing that you mentioned before, Sean, is that the whole reason why the... Um, the planets of the galactic um, of the galaxy decide to, to come to Earth and to lift the embargo is because they discover that the Zenuvians have already been there meddling about for at least two, two centuries. And that was them basically saying, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, we don't have a choice. Because the idea really was supposed to be leave them alone, let them develop at their own pace and so forth. I had a theory, I had a kind of a theory that basically said that Sadira or Jhune basically was like the 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 paternalistic planet for the Zenuvians. So the Zenuvians actually remember um sort of big brother, big sister society, sort of like civilization sort of telling them, oh you know you're very young and junior and we're gonna guide you and so on. And there's a part of the Zenuvians that always felt, well if there's ever someone junior to us, we get to fill that role now. But you know the opposite happened where, first of all, Sidira had their own problems. But by then, they would have already been decided that, you know what, this whole thing was actually a mistake because I've never gone into the details of, of the, of the um, First Galactic War, but I always figured that it probably came as a result of, of that sort of paternalistic attitude going really badly wrong. So, the, so by that time, they're like, no, nobody's going to shepherd Earth in any kind of direction. We're going to basically do a hands-off thing let them develop however they develop and maybe they'll discover us on their own or whatever, but you know, we're not going to be part of it. And then they discover that the Zenobians and their eagerness to, to play big brother have already gone in. But because I've portrayed the Zenobians as, as um, well, and there again, I never like stories that are 
ascribe one particular characteristic to an entire planet or an entire group of planets. So we're not talking about all the Zenobians because there's a new A and there's a new B and they've, they've got different motive, motives and motivations happening. And then that's the governments and then the cartels are another thing altogether. So it's really the cartels that are out of hand and the governments aren't strong enough to keep the cartels reined in. But the overall attitude is still, we want to play. We want to have, um, you know, a little, a little sibling to boss around and we're going to do that with Earth. And that is why they have to come in and interfere. That is why they have to, to, to break the embargo that was so important, um, you know, that, that was supposed to, you know, keep us untainted from all this external influence. So, yeah, there are a few things I was playing with there. I, I, don't, I don't simplify things, do I? This is this is why some readers don't like me. This is fun. We want we want more of this. This is also why you should write like thicker books. But that's just me. You listen. Pay me more. Pay me more so I can take more time, <laughs> and then I can write thicker books. But as it stands right now, when you see the book that you have in your hand, that is me trying to write to deadline because I need to get paid by a certain time. Being honest, being honest, and and you know while I'm here, solidarity to all the the writers and actors strikes because my goodness. Come on, give us give us some respect for the for the creative work that we do. I feel extremely strongly about this, and anyone who thinks that this stuff that we do is easy, um, I just I just want to smack them really. Indeed, I've I've done a lot of jobs in my life. Okay, I've done a lot of occupations in my life, and this is not easy. Okay, it is rewarding, but it's not easy. <laughs> I I think I think it's very telling that you've been in the military and worked in diplomatic <laughs> fields and writing is the hard thing <laughs> writing is people hard should thing. hear you say that more often yes yes but it depends on how you want to write as well because there is a range and unfortunately the particular kind of area of writing i've chosen is one where i'm not always catering to the reader i'm really um trying to to, to sort of plumb some depths in myself i'm trying to to, um, to bring together a lot of what I've learned and what I've experienced. And I really am trying to serve the story instead of serving the reader. And I think some readers can detect that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> some, some are happy with it. Some are like, yeah, yeah, challenge us. Yeah, do stuff. And others are like, yeah, I'm, I'm confused. I'm, I'm going to close the book now. I'm like, it's okay. Go find yourself <laughs> what you're happy with. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. The goal is that more of those people will put the book down and go... I need to figure out some things first, like do some preliminary reading and then come back to this and then they come back to it. Well, I, that sometimes happens. I would love for that to happen. And I don't know, um, Brandon, I don't know if you noticed, it's, it's so hard to mention Twitter these days. I just don't even know what's happening with that place. <laughs> but, but um, you know, the Journal of, of West Indian Literature was, um, they, were, they sometimes have a guest social media person who talks about a particular author and they were talking about Erna Broadbur um, past week or two. And I was like having a real zing moment. You, Sean, have you read Erna Broadbur? I have. Have you read The Rainmaker's Mistake? I have. Yes, yes. It's been a long yes, time yes. though, okay, but I have Okay, read do it. want to make sure you're on the same field. So Erna Broadbur, for those of us who are, those of you listening who are not in the know, is an extremely award-winning, um, very much revered kind of elder of our Caribbean literature um, um, sort of landscape. Um, but also not what I would call like commercially popular, not like, you know, it's not like she's very well known, but she comes from a very similar background. Um, you know, the sociology, folklore and so on. We even 
you know, she's she's worked with Salesis, Sir Arthur Lewis Institute for Social and Economic Studies in Jamaica. I've worked with the one in Barbados. Um, they're all part of the University of West Indies. And um, there was something in the tweets that basically said that, you know, sometimes she, she feels a little bothered that her children and grandchildren don't understand her books, but she likes that um, they feel it's rewarding to, 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 to try with the challenge. And she wants that for people to not only feel that the challenge is rewarding, but be so excited by the challenge that you go and say to other people, here, here, come and read this, come and, come and, you know, struggle with this, with like I did and let's discuss it. You know, that's the kind of, of, of um, experience that she's hoping to deliver. And I was like, that's it. That's this exactly. <laughs> um, but of course, Erna Broder's work is almost like front and center, obviously difficult. And I think that maybe my problem as a writer is that sometimes the things that I write on the surface look quite, quite light, quite easy. And I can see that from the reviews. People are like, oh, you know, she meant to do this and she didn't do it very well. I'm like, that was like the 5% of what I was doing there. <laughs> so if you didn't think I did, didn't do that well, that's probably because you didn't see all the other stuff that was going on. Um, so I almost, but I, I can't like force the difficulty because I still like, I still like the enjoyment of the light bits. I still like the enjoyment of the, I know my agent calls it the cozy intellectual where uh, on the one hand you're, you're, you're happy and you're enjoying yourself and, and these characters are really cool and, and here's a lovely romance. But then there's like all this really chewy stuff going on in terms of, we say the politics and the ethics and the, and the rest of it. And you're like, oh, when you go, when you think, and then you come back and you reread and you're like, yeah. And then you go and you think again. <laughs> if I can deliver that experience, that is what I'm hoping for. Mm-hmm. Also, I like that because um, Cozy Intellectual is very close to the way that I've recommended the Galaxy game to a friend, ah. which is Soft Sociology. Oh, wow. um, Soft Sociology. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, dear. I like that a lot. Nice, nice. You should put that, that's a tagline you should use more often. One of those two, you should just drag your little quote. There are two things I'm trying to push as I do all the promo for this year and then for next year with the next two books coming out. And that is sociological fiction and cozy intellectual. Those are the two things I'm really trying to push. But the cozy intellectual, it needs an aesthetic. And I'm still like on Pinterest trying to like pull together the images of like various like decor and clothes and food and whatever that I think matches this thing. You know how they have like light and dark academia? I figure if I can make it like a, almost like a brand, I'll be able to say, yeah, wear this stuff and you'll be a cozy intellectual. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm kidding in case anybody yeah. wonders. <laughs> soft soft gray sweaters and a rocking chair reading a, a textbook. Stop, stop, stop. You see, this is where this is where I ran into difficulty because we are in the tropics and me and sweaters are not gonna have a cozy time. <laughs> yeah, this is terrible for us, but we need to we need to cater to white people as well. No, we don't. It is originating in the <laughs> you don't tropics. Have to. <laughs> Brandon, mm-hmm. we've had this discussion. <laughs> um, we have, yes, <laughs> I know. Cozy doesn't have to be about um, what temperature it is. I know that when people say cozy, they immediately think you're by a fire and there's a lot of hot cocoa in your hands and maybe some marshmallows toasted inside and whatever. And that's what the whole cozy aesthetic is. We can be cozy in the tropics too. We can be cozy in, mm-hmm. in 30 degrees Celsius. It's not like easy, but we can do it. It's very hard. <laughs> it involves things like, like, like linen, for example, like linen and like 
mm-hmm. you know, cold, refreshing drinks. Let me tell you, the mojito, I'm sure the mojito is in there with the cozy. Look, see, Sean is on board already. <laughs> I make mojitos myself with my own mint. Oh, you... If we meet in person, Sean, I am going to I am going to beg you to to make me mojito. I will find you the ingredients and the location, um, you know, the, the kitchenette or bar, whatever you need, because that's like one of my most favorite things. Mojitos are really they're good. so good, especially when you make them with the, so the, the proper brown sugar when you're muddling it. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Sorry, I, you see, this is this is a podcast full <laughs> of segues. I, I just I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> Is it, this is is it too grand. late we to have this. a mojito at this point? <laughs> it's never too late. Wait, you have work in, do you have work in the morning? No. <laughs> Go right ahead. No one is stopping. You're an adult. You get to make these decisions on your own. I am an adult. I would recommend, but... I would recommend you make a Queen's Park Swizzle instead, but I don't know if you have any Swizzle sticks home. I don't. No. Exactly. But maybe some other time. Okay, so Sean, Sean, before we leave this, and we will leave this, I'm just going to say, you, you got the mojitos down pat, you're good. Get yourself some linen shirts, which are going to be great in this like heating world anyway. Um, get yourself some tree frog um, background um, noise sound thing. And I want you to sit and have your feet up in a nice recliner and the mojitos at your elbow and you're listening to the tree frogs. And that is your cozy intellectual space. You're allowed shorts and sandals too. I love it. Yeah. I want that. Yeah. That's, no, that's this works for me. That's the image. I love it. I do miss the frogs from Florida because when it's mating season, they're loud. <laughs> okay, so we, we do need to, to wrap up. So we've got two quick questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, which you've kind of already told us, but just in case there's anything else, what are you working on next? We know you've got the duology coming of uh, Redemption of Indigo and Unraveling, mm-hmm. which is coming out next year. Is, is that the primary thing or is there another secret project you can tell us about? anything new yes i can tell you about something new um as you know the same way you had the re-release and the new sickness beta book this year and the two reissues next year think of this almost like a relaunching of my whole body of work you know almost like a career relaunch so now everything's under the delray umbrella so in terms of what i'm working on i wrote a manuscript um what during the pandemic so it's filled to the brim of trauma because we didn't just have a pandemic. We had a hurricane. We had ashfall. I had a friend die. I had, um, you know, there was just like a lot happening. And then there was a whole like Black Lives Matter happening in the background and, and stuff and stuff. And it was just trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And I was writing this, this, this story, which ironically was a part of what was supposed to have been in the best of all possible worlds, but I had to take out. What happened with the best of all possible worlds is I meant to set it in the present day. That was before 2016. And then by the time Brexit and Trump happened, I was like, the world has gone too crazy for me to even write about it fictionally. But I know, I know what public, how long publication takes. And right now, the things I thought I could write about, um, I made this sound as if it's the present day world, it's going to be unrecognizable. So um, there were things I was thinking about doing um, and I said, I'm going to push back the whole, um, the whole era for the best uh, for the, the blue, beautiful world down about another hundred or 150 years or so. And I'll save this for another book. So I started writing this thing and it's basically about, um, uh, civil war in the UK. It's, it's actually, I was writing it because what happened was that somebody asked me if I was willing to write a novella and I was like, I'm broke. So I'll write anything at this point. Um, and 
yeah, you'll find me talking a lot about money. I am not ashamed. And um, so I was writing this thing. And I said to my agent at a certain point, I'm a little concerned because apart from the fact that it's a sort of a slightly in the future alt history thing, there's nothing in here that's speculative. Even the stuff that's where that's going on could be blamed on this, this fellow's head injury, basically. Uh, she was like, keep writing it and, and see what the story needs because my agent, she, she gets me. <laughs> um, she's not like, you know, you have to put into this genre. She'd be like, see what the story needs. So um, so I did, in fact, finish a draft and it, it took a while. I, I kept thinking and put it back down because what would tend to happen is I would write something or be on the verge of writing something because, you know, you have an outline you're planning to tell. And then the, the thing I was supposed to write about something similar would happen in real life. And that was freaking me out a bit. Um, so I was just like, you know, kind of trying to pace myself in terms of my emotional reaction to a lot of what was happening that I was writing, but it was mirroring too much of my real emotional reactions to real things that were happening in the world. And, um, but I finally got like near the end, like I was saying to her, I just have this one last scene to do. It's actually the most pivotal one. It's the most brutal one and so forth. And I can't write it just yet because ashfall happened and it's too much like what i have to write <laughs> but here have a look at it so she had a look at it and that's that's interesting because it means i don't think she's actually has she read the more up-to-date one but um she asked me to expand it into a novel she had a she had a strong reaction to it a strong positive reaction to it and she asked me to expand it into a novel and i was like i get where you're coming from but i don't know if it's possible because i i knowing it was a novella I did this thing where it was one single person's point of view and less than 24 hours. Now, I can pad that thing with some description, but it's going to get much longer. <laughs> I can maybe throw in about an extra, I mean, if I'm lucky, maybe an extra 10,000. I'm still going to be like a longish novella. We're, we're going to have that conversation when I see her later this year. And um, that's probably what's going to come out next. And whether it will be taken up by a strongly SF imprint is the question because as i said it's not that strongly sf it's really more about someone who comes into an area and, and so it's really about refugees as well about um about how you treat people who are fleeing war and disaster and uh, a curse is connected with that it's called the angel at the gate because i had this image of this stained glass angel with a sword guarding the gate of this priory but at some point, the angel kind of comes alive. But like I said, maybe it's because of the head injury. <laughs> so, um, so, <laughs> so yeah, there was all that connected with it. And I even, look, I'll give you an example. When I talk about the stuff I was writing that was like freaking me out too much. Around the time of Black Lives Matter, I was writing a bit where the protagonist is on a train trying to escape the, the front, which is coming closer and closer. And the, there are people on the train who recognize him as a foreigner and beat him up and throw him off the train because he's a person of color. And then Ukraine thing happened. And actually at the point that Ukraine happened, so many other things had happened that I was like, I give up. I am no longer bothered by this. I don't care anymore. There is, I've, I've, ner I've nearly got to the end. The firebombing of the Priory was covered of the ash fall where we had like, you know, nighttime at, at noonday because of the, the earth the atmosphere is so filled with ash and and um and i was like yeah i i've gone beyond being scared you have officially pushed me past terror to the point where i can finish this novel this this novella and not worry about it anymore because you know what more are you going to do to me <laughs> at least i know our protagonist doesn't die <laughs>
Ah, uh, so I know it's a ramble, but yeah, that's probably what's going to be coming out. I do have to return to it um, as soon as I lay down my promotional mantle, which is always a, a heavy one that authors have to, you know, can't juggle that creativity very well. At least I can't. I applaud those who can. Um, but yeah, when I find a little oasis, I'm going to return to it and first see what I can do with expanding it without making it look like it's stretching out too much. And then give back to my agent and say, right, where the France are we going to pitch this? Because who's going to publish it? <laughs> the angel at the yeah, gate. There's you somebody. Heard it first. Unless the title changes, because you know what things were like. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So but folks, I'm very excited for that. Yeah, I, I, I want to see this. I also like, because I like any book where it's not quite clear what's real and what's mm. not. That's always really fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so... Break my mind. No, do. Always love that challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, of course, the internet is becoming very fractured lately, but, of course, the folks would want to know where they can find you uh, in the world. So, uh, how can folks get a hold of Um, you? I'm trying to be better about maintaining my website, karenlord.wordpress.com. I keep it simple. I need to be able to to handle the stuff myself. And then Dr. Karen Lord, that's D-R for doctor, Karen Lord, L-O-R-D, no E. Um, we'll find me most social media places. That's for Tumblr, for Blue Sky, for Twitter, for Instagram. Yeah, I think that covers where I am right now. So everybody should go buy the book. It is mm, Yes. So there we go. So folks can go buy the book. They can get it right now. You can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold. So go buy 15 copies and distribute them to your friends and then make them go Have buy 15 a book copies club. Have a book club. Yeah. Yes. And uh, have it. a book club and reach out to me and I may come chat with you. You never know. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for, for coming on. I know this is really hard for you and oh. you had no fun whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited to see a new book and oh. I'm very glad we could get you on the show. I really appreciate it. And, I, and as I said before, you need to book me for, for next year, please, because I enjoy this a lot. And um, I don't know if Brandon is going to want to to deal with it again or if you're going to have somebody else. But I feel like I'm in good hands when, when, when I'm on this podcast. I can twist Brandon's arm. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, Sean forces me to do things all the time. <laughs> but yes, I would absolutely love to chat with you again we can about all sorts of other things, including this new thing that you've just mentioned to us, but yes. Absolutely. So, for folks at home, um, thanks very much for being here. As a reminder, skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions. If you've read the book and you want to let us know what you thought, you could do that. Um, you can find Skiffing Fanny on pretty much all the social media sites. The best place to go for all of our stuff is our link tree. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Fanny. We're on, like, you know, Instagram and Facebook and Blue Sky and all of that, but they're all linked there in order of most importance. Um, if you like the show, we do have a newsletter, skiffyfanny.com slash newsletter, but we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash skiffyfanny, where you can give us all your money because we're poor and we need all your money, too. Yes, tell um, them about the money. Tell them about the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give us all your money. We need to live. Yeah, mostly we just need to cover hosting fees. <laughs> That's all. That too. Yeah. Um, anyway, for me, you can find me, if I'm not knocking headphones out of my ear because I got excited, uh, you can find me at seanduke.net. I also have a link tree which has my Twitch stream and my Patreon, etc., and that's just slash seanduke. Um, so you can go find all of my cool stuff out there. Uh, as for me, Brandon O'Brien, you can find me on most social media at The Rising Tides. I have a newsletter at brandonobrien.xyz, and I play TTRPGs at speculatorstuff.com.
Absolutely. So, uh, as required by the Skiffing Fanny bylaws, I must make it awkward. So, I have a reclining, one of those reclining chairs that you take, like, to the beach, you know? I'm going to take that, go right downtown, Bemidji. I'm going to sit right in the middle of the street with a Mai Tai yeah. and, or, or a mojito, perhaps yeah. both. Who knows? And I'm just going to read a book. Yeah, do it. Probably okay. not. Do it. I, I'm probably get arrested, actually, because I think that <laughs> counts as an open container, so I don't want to get arrested. Yes, not an open container. It'll be a non-alcoholic just... mojito. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite the same. I guess we could I guess we could settle for that. It won't be the same though. No, it's not. I'll just stay home. Alright, folks. <laughs> and on that note, awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening.